my camera up for you. Good evening, or afternoon, or morning, or whatever it is for you where this podcast is finding your ears. This is Rank and Review, episode 124. This episode, we're going to tackle creature features for the fifth time in the series, and returning guest and former champion Matthew Risling will lend his expertise to the program. Please understand, as is always the case with Rank and Review, there will be spoilers for the movies being discussed as well as, very likely, some coarse language. Please send feedback to me at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Please check out the website at rankinreview.ca, because I am Canadian, so .ca. And please tell that other movie nerd in your life about Rankin Review. Okay, welcome to the 124th episode of Rankin Review with returning and former champion, Matthew Risling. And in I the think, flesh, no Skype, none of that bullshit. We're in the room together. I think you uh, forgot show favorite and fan favorite. <laughs> I assume I'm, I'm, I didn't get a shout out like Lee Beckman did, but I assume there are some on yeah. their way. I'm sure that was just an oversight on Mitch's part. Right? Yeah, yeah, well just, I'm sure it'll happen next time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I got you back in my garage, and I got you to talk about some creature features. Um, we've worn out our ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, creature features are a different genre, but they're the same in that they seem to have set rules that need to be followed in a lot of ways. There is a formula to these movies. Um, obviously, they're not your favorite. You said your favorite are ghosts. But where do you land on their standard creature feature? Um, I, so this list... I'm going to have a hard time saying I loved this list, but I actually think the formula is less formulaic. One of the things that I liked about this particular grouping of movies is there were a lot that I'd never heard of, and I was honestly wondering where is this going, but not in a frustrated way, in a way where I you could kind of tell the director knew where things were going, but you got to watch things unfold. And it could be just that I've watched so many ghost movies that I don't get that anymore. But right. These feel these felt like there was more room to to move around. Despite the presence of two sequels, it seemed fresher to you. Yeah. And I guess you hadn't seen any of them except for maybe Jaws three. Uh, no, I had seen little slivers of Jaws three on TV. Right. Um, when I I mean many, many years after it was new, when it was it was not something that I particularly ever wanted to watch. Um. Yes, I think this might be the first list I've ever done for you where I hadn't seen any of them ahead of time. Nice. Yeah. 
I kind of assumed that everybody had seen Jaws 3D, not because it's such an amazing mm-hmm. movie, but I just assumed everybody at some point that were of, a, of that right age put themselves through that experience. I think maybe to me it's like the movie It's a Wonderful Life, where I haven't seen it, but that I've you, seen it. You feel like you've seen it. Well, I hope you've seen it before this conversation anyway. <laughs> well, I've seen it now, yeah. And <laughs> kind of wish, uh, not that I wish that I hadn't seen it. <laughs> well, for me, I have, there's big budget sort of numbers in like um, the It remake and Alien Covenant and uh, I guess the uh, Jaws 3D at the time, although yeah, I mean, it doesn't it look that expensive. afforded a Quaid and a Gossett Jr., right. so it had some sort of budget. At the time, they spent some money on this and it was part of a big franchise, so I mean, it doesn't look that great now. So I got those three and then I've got three cheaper ones. There's the remake of It's Alive. Um, and then Bite, a Canadian horror movie, and The Monster, an American... Obviously, the latter three significantly lower budget than the former. And uh, I think that, with some exceptions, they all function at doing what they're doing, but in a way, I'm surprisingly going to play favorites, or I'll be more sympathetic, I guess, to the low-budget sort of scrappy pictures. Yeah, I think you you have to do that with this list, Um my my general takeaway from it is that there were like obviously two categories the higher budget and the lower budget but in these ones in particular it seemed like the higher budget movies being worse than they should though not necessarily bad mm-hmm. and the lower budget ones being better than they should but not necessarily good so it becomes a very weird like I can't say, as in previous episodes, like, oh, The Witch is for sure the standout winner, or right. or um, Devil's Backbone is the standout winner. There's no standout winner. There is a standout winner. No obvious standout yeah. winner. Yeah. Um, there are certain movies that do... There are some movies that do certain things well um, and other things bad. Maybe they just all do some things well and some things bad, except for one movie that does all things bad. Everything, yeah, I think we're going to agree on that. Uh, it's also the question of expectations, right? If you're going into Alien Covenant, directed by Ridley Scott, you know, <laughs> big budget, big cast, big production, maybe you have higher expectations than to this Canadian indie thriller called Bite, right? Mm-hmm. So you would lower your expectations for one and raise them for the other, and those doing that will affect your enjoyment of them. So it does become super tricky at how to rank these. Yeah, this 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 list, I could imagine like four or five different permutations, <laughs> all of which I could justify. <laughs> but I mean, it's kind of exciting too. Like that means there's a chance that we'll go <laughs> six for six or zero for six. Um, I think that there might be an obvious bottom. I think, yeah, there's an obvious bottom in this list. <laughs> I don't think we have to be coy about but that's that's it though. That's yeah. it. And I want to start out that way. Like, there's good and bad things to be said about all of these movies. Yes. And the rank is going to be almost arbitrary at this yes. point. <laughs> so I, this is this will officially be the least helpful episode <laughs> of Rank and Review ever. At least you get to hear us talk about some movies that you may never have heard of. Because right. uh, two and a half of these movies I'd never heard of before. And you don't necessarily regret your time. No, no, no. Uh, I mean, I binged like four of them in the last 48 hours. 48 hours. hours. Yeah. boy. Yeah. Look what I've done to you. Well, unless there's something else you want to say by introduction? Yeah, let's get into it. All right. Um, the six movies, which I'm sure I've already mentioned, that we are going to talk about in the order that I just picked them up in. Alien Covenant, The Monster, Jaws 3D, Bite, 
the new version of It, and we're going to finish it with It's Alive, the remake of uh, Larry Clark. Classic, question mark? Uh, cult classic? <laughs> cult classic? Yeah, we'll figure it out. Thanks for being here, brother. Thanks for having me. sure about this captain how do you mean we don't know what the fuck's out there So I think the interesting thing about reviewing Alien Covenant with you is that you don't have any opinion on Prometheus because you haven't seen it. Never seen Prometheus. Because I've often felt that how you feel about Covenant would probably have a direct relation to how you felt about Prometheus. If you really embraced the sort of highfalutin sci-fi angle that they were trying to lean into uh, in Prometheus you're going to probably feel kicked in the balls <laughs> by Covenant because compared to Prometheus, this is a straight-up monster movie. Like, two people fucking in a shower get attacked by an alien. Yeah, that movie. was a hilarious scene. <laughs> that, was, that was a very Deep Star 6 moment. To but me. completely unpretentious, right? Like, almost the uh, opposite of what you got pretentious. It's just like so industry standard. It's like, oh, so we're doing this now. Although, I thought they were big swaths of pretentiousness in Alien Covenant. Well, again, having not seen Prometheus, yeah, um, I guess we'll, we'll start set up here. Okay. A crew of people who are going to settle a new planet find uh, a planet en route that looks like it would be habitable and much easier than the original setup they were going to have. So. No, wait, you got to back up even further where it's the colonist ship in cryosleep. Right. And then they deploy the... Um, Alarm. Well, the sails to suck in solar energy. And then there's a solar storm which causes uh, an overload. And some people, including the captain of the ship, get burned up in their cryopods. Right. So there isn't. they didn't just abandon their initial mission. There's mitigating factors. For me, it feels like the movie really starts when they get to this planet. <laughs> um we're wondering what happened to David and Shaw at the end of Prometheus. Will they take off together to try and find the people, the engineers, as I they are I don't know called. who David and Shaw are, okay. or the engineers. I assume that's the planet full of guys that look like Leonard Cohen that I didn't fully understand. Yes. Um, so in Prometheus, at the end, the only two survivors, which is David, this robot, Michael Fassbender, and Shaw, fly away. 
uh, to try and find the origin planet of these guys they call the engineers, which we find out in Prometheus created us, and then later we assumed created these aliens as a mean to destroy us. They they made our world, they studied our world, and now they decided our world needed to be shut down. Um, so all of the people in that expedition are killed except for Shaw and David. They fly off to find the en- uh, engineers, and then we start with this whole new crew. They find this planet, and the only person, or the only robot on the planet, is the Michael Fessbender robot. Interestingly enough, they have a Michael Fessbender model on their ship as well. So Fessbender is doing double duties. Mm-hmm. Um, who he was sinister in the first movie Prometheus, but you couldn't decide if it was his personal motiv- motivations or if he was programmed. Classic robot thing. For this movie, he's bad. Yeah. In fact, Shaw becomes a medical experiment to him. All of those p- medical journals that he had with this this woman in the pictures, that was Shaw. Yeah, yeah, he had done gross skin grafting to her face. And... So essentially she did not survive. Basically Prometheus, yeah. that actress wasn't going to return. We have a whole... And there was Charlize Theron, right? No, Charlize Theron was also in that movie, but uh, she got she got crushed in a really stupid way. Oh yeah, so that's all I ever hear about Prometheus is she wasn't running away properly. Move twelve feet to the right or left. You lived through that movie. But I read a book or an article saying that people run straight anyway. That's not that out of character. Well, that's the interesting about alien movies. There are people who will voraciously want to defend, or you know, it's great. You're a fucking idiot. It's amazing. Whereas I found um, Prometheus to be frustrating. Like I in the end just didn't like it I don't have the same amount of hate with Covenant I don't think it's a great movie I think it's another alien sequel and considering that Ridley Scott directed it it should have been a lot better than it was yeah I thought it was maybe slightly worse than Alien 4 (laughs) where you have this crew of people all with their interesting personalities that go somewhere and they have guns and they kind of get picked off one by one and it's it's that formula right um a lot of the plot hinges on these people being stupid idiots in yeah. almost every situation, which is... You don't want to fight the movie too much, but it's really frustrating that they are on this new planet that they've never seen before. And they know they can breathe, but they decide not to wear any kind of spacesuits. And, like, script-wise, because what's going to happen, spoilers from this point forward, is the evil robots created these spores of little micro nanobots that get in their ears and start killing them and then turning them into aliens. Basically, they can impregnate people with aliens with this almost fungal sort of stuff instead of being traditionally face-hugged. Yeah, although there are face-huggers as well. But this is, again, a prequel to the rest of the alien stuff. I guess they sort of evolve into that progressively. But in this version, uh, yeah, they disturb a plant on the ground and these spores come up and fuck them up and then an alien pops out of them. Yeah, so they evolve into something that's far less efficient at reproducing. (laughs) But whatever. (laughs) But, but, I mean, even from a screenwriting point of view, okay, they want to get the alien bugs in at least one or two of these people so we can get the plot going. But you've got an evil character that they don't know is evil, why not just have them not be stupid idiots, wear spacesuits, and have them sabotage it or something? That's, you know, you just... Just do that, and then then you have less questions about why everybody's doing stupid things. I agree 100%. It's the same problem in Prometheus, but why I find it less so here. In Prometheus, there was like they spent a lot of time introducing these people, and in order to be on this voyage to find the you know creators of our universe, you'd have to be one of the smartest, most capable people in your field. So they establish that, and then they show us them repeatedly doing 
unbelievably <laughs> stupid things. In this version, the people are kind of in a panic mode. They're, they're, they're on their heels a little bit. And it's much more of a traditional monster movie. So because it doesn't have that pretentious pretext of being a grand piece of sci-fi, and it's much more okay with just being a monster movie, I'm much more okay with them making the dumb decisions. Or else the dumb decisions that are only dumb decisions because the characters don't understand context. There's that scene where one person is about to erupt with an alien, he's having a fit, and the other crew member, not knowing what's going on, just hugs him. Yeah. <laughs> that was really sad. Right? There, there were a couple of moments of genuine pathos in this, for sure. Yeah. Um, Danny McBride, who's traditionally a comic actor, gets to play a serious role in yeah. this movie. And James Franco. We've got two people from Pineapple Express. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I didn't put that. And this is the end. I didn't even put that together. So the previous episode to this, we reviewed This is the End with <laughs> McBride. Whereas my buddy Scott refers fucking McBride. <laughs> <laughs> He's really one of the most charismatic characters in this. I really liked him. I yeah, really liked too. him. It's one of those classic things. And they didn't ask him to do anything too overtly funny, but they they also didn't take too much he still sort of felt like Danny McBride to me yeah. but I liked him I liked that he was a very sort of sympathetic character I felt for him when he found out that his wife had been killed <laughs> I'm glad he didn't know how bad it was for her <laughs> I also liked Billy Crudup uh, Crudup? Crudup? One of those uh, as the so James Franco appears basically in like a home video and he's the captain of the ship that burns up in the first minute or so of this movie. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so the next in line is Billy Crudup, who is one of those characters when he gets, he takes the captaincy role and you're not sure, like he, he's not comfortable in the role and you can tell he's not quite sure the best way to proceed. And I think a lesser movie, he would have been really inept and making bad decisions all the way and forcing it through because he was self-conscious or else making no decisions and getting them all killed. I thought they actually did a really good job. He was a character that was quite sympathetic for me Mm -hmm. of having somebody who wasn't comfortable in his role was making what he thought was the best decision. And and, like he was the one that wanted to land on the planet, even though... um, I guess a protagonist whose name I can't remember, but the daughter of Jack McCoy from Law and Order, who yeah. looks exactly like a cute version of Jack McCoy from Law and Order. <laughs> Which is strange. Waterston? Yeah. Can't remember her first name either right now. Um, she doesn't want to go onto the planet, and then it's it's a little bit of a um, uh, push back and forth between them, but eventually he says, no, this is my order, we're going to go there. Um, and then it turns out to be an alien horror death planet. But of course, his decision still wasn't all that bad. Because no. what are the chances it's going to be an alien horror death planet? And she doesn't. she's not too much of a jerk about it. The character echoes back to Gorman in Aliens. Right, right, uh, right. Who was put in charge for the first time in this trek. And it becomes a total shit show. He fucks it up. He knows he fucks it up. And he tries to make up for it. That's sort of exactly what we have here with the Crudup character, although I don't think he gets to redeem himself in any way. Basically, well, he kills an alien, and then he dies in the most stupid horror movie way. Yeah. And again, this is where we get into the Star Trek, I'm an alien nerd thing. <laughs> but uh, this is one thing that has never been consistent in any of the Aliens movies. And like maybe with Aliens vs. Predator, we can shrug him off as just a comic book parallel universe, but... How long do the aliens just take? Seriously. Is it a couple of days, a couple of hours, or a couple of minutes? It's whatever the screenplay needs it to be. I was really thinking about that when a guy got a face hugger on his face for about 25 seconds, and then they got it off. And then he's got an alien in his chest later, but like, 
so it only takes like a second and then they've stubbed their shoved their ovipositors down your throat and you're impregnated because in the first alien movie it was like a few days so i would have assumed it was a long-ish process yeah but again, this movie it goes on to almost exaggerate that the the character talking about Billy Crudup character gets, you know, very coldly murdered by the evil robot, and when the alien bursts from his chest, he looks at the robot and does this little <laughs> cheer, almost reaching its hands in the air. And again, it was just this moment of the movie it was like, no, that was a really bad instinct, and you guys all should have known it. There's nothing scary about that. That is only ridiculous and silly. Yeah. But there's also, like, you know, this scene where he he's still not sure about the robot, but he's pretty suspicious of him, and then he notices the robot's, like, taming an alien as, as you would a wild deer holding out your hand for it to sniff, and then yeah. he's got his gun, so he kills the alien, and then he's got it pointed at the robot, and he's like, tell us what's going on, so the robot's like, okay, come and look in this thing, and then it's a pod that's opened up, and there's obviously this monster thing, <laughs> bends over to have a closer look, and then a thing jumps on his face, I'm like, dude, come on. Yeah. And yeah, there's nothing to fear. <laughs> <laughs> he goes back to that Warner's character in, in Piranha, there's no way they could ever reach the open ocean, <laughs> like there's, he was just clearly bad. And that, that will go to another thing. I like Fessbender as an actor, and I think he's got a really interesting scene with himself in about the midway point of this movie. But they try to do this switcheroo where the good robot is killed by the bad robot, but takes his spot. Mm-hmm. And I totally saw that coming. <laughs> like, yeah, that was the least shocking shock and they were really trying to make this the big thing that the, the whoa shit pull the rug out from under you moment of the movie. And it's another one of those things when you're trying, you really thought you had me there, right? And you didn't? That feels like a number of Family Guy parodies of 1970s movies where somebody's a robot and like, right. which of the robots do you shoot? And then sh- you shoot one and, and then well, there was one with Peter and then at the end they're hugging and it turns out he was the robot all along. They've been doing those sketches on Family Guy for about 25 years now. So maybe <laughs> it's not quite as... I mean, I get that Ridley Scott's like 98 years old. So he's not quite as cutting edge as he might once have been. But somebody should have said something. Because if it wasn't... Like if we had seen what was happening so we didn't think like they think they're so much smarter than us. Right. Like they could have just had good robot become bad or them switch places or something yeah um but to try to fool us with it and the felt annoying yeah so where the movie works for me is actually the bare bones monster movie stuff (laughs) the jump out of the dark that dude who gets his fucking jaw ripped off of his face and like um even that ridiculous sex scene in the shower (laughs) i had a big smile on my face while that was happening this is the providence of like friday the 13th right now like we've just gone to a completely different movie but i was liking that a lot of people really reacted really hostile to this when they watched the alien movies to me it almost feels like they maybe overcorrected from prometheus or somebody had was butthurt over people the blowback on Prometheus. Oh, fine, you don't want 2001? Well, then we'll give you <laughs> Friday the 13th. Obviously, you're too dumb to handle 2001, right? But, but I... Oh, sorry. No, I'm just saying, uh, it was better at being a monster movie than it was at being a sci-fi movie in a lot of ways. But it was a sci-fi monster movie that was probably about 20 minutes too long, mm. and 
because there were long swaths of pretentious stuff and Paradise Lost shit and, and I think quite uninteresting religious allegories that were really, really slowing it down. So I could just... There were things that worked really well. Um, The spaceship stuff worked really well. Even before the whole alien business, I was liking the movie because I was just liking the world that they were creating on the spaceship. But then they'd stop in some interminable flashback where they're being pretentious and listening to Wagner because that's the fanciest music that Ridley Scott's ever heard of or like you just got the feeling that the director thought that he was really smart with all of these not so smart smart bits I think they were trying something with the credit character too because he was still a person of faith and you got the feeling like in this world that was a very rare thing now people who still clung to that were sort of like considered very old school and I, I, I liked seeing that, liked seeing that recognized in sort of the science fiction context. But I, part of me honestly feels like if you're on a spaceship colonizing people to spread the seed of humanity across the galaxy, then you're probably not counting on this spiritual <laughs> godfather to be looking after you, right? It looks like you're looking after the human race. I mean, I could imagine. I, I was really curious about where they were going to go with the fact that he had religious faith and there were lots of allegories, and then it turns out they're nowhere. going nowhere. Yeah. There's he he All the scenes where he mentioned his faith could have been cut, and not a single thing would have changed otherwise. Yeah. I think what we had there was a a really good actor who managed to make a meal out of a part that might not have been as good otherwise. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I did like him. And overall, I did like the movie. I feel like I was in the minority on this one. A lot of people really fucking hated this movie. I liked that the aliens were a little bit scary again. I was really missing that in the last few installments of Alien. When they have that big over-the-top action sequence where it's crawling on the outside of the ship as they're going off, it's kind of like... A little bit over silly. I felt like I might have been watching an Avengers movie at that right. point. But that alien trying to break through the windscreen and eat Danny McBride looked like it was really fucking meaning business. <laughs> and I really because you want Danny McBride to live. Yeah, and I really liked like yeah, I was in it. I was in it. Yeah. And I never got that involved with Prometheus. So overall I'm lukewarm but I'm happy to report I liked it a lot more than the previous chapter what I would say about this is we started we apparently are doing these movies in a completely random order I think Alien Covenant is a great movie to start with because it's an absolute baseline like there's nothing uh, there's nothing too bad or too good about it so you can measure the general overall quality of the rest of them by how they stack up to this perfectly mediocre some good some bad aspects movie and that's basically my review like if you're in for another alien movie here it is (laughs) like if it sounds like something you would want to watch go ahead and watch it easily better than alien 3 there you go good enough good enough
So we're going to talk about this movie called The Monster. I hope nobody stayed up too many nights cramming for it. What are we going to call it? What are we going to call it? <laughs> the director, Brian Bertino, made this movie that overperformed for me about 10, or 10 years ago or so called The Strangers with Liv Tyler and uh, her husband to go to this cabin to have a romantic evening. And these people knock at the door at like 3 in the morning and they're wearing all these fucked up masks and shit. And they just scare the shit out of them and I remembered thinking like there's really nothing that innovative about this movie but it is quite frightening like mm. like uh, and so nothing new about the premise nothing really particularly crazily new about the approach but it really worked and I guess that's kind of how I feel about the monster yeah <laughs> it's really really well made technically completely well executed but it could have been written by a computer right like <laughs> Uh, mother and daughter are driving. They have a strained relationship. The daughter is being returned to her divorcee dad, and she's making it pretty clear to her drunk mom that she does not want to come back ever again. Mm -hmm. They hit a wolf on the road. It looks like it's been already involved in some kind of altercation, and soon they realize there's something in the woods that's trying to eat them. And anybody who shows up to try to help them, be it an ambulance worker or a truck driver, gets viciously mauled by this terrible monster. I think that even if you hadn't seen the movie, you'd probably say, hmm, is this broken relationship going to be somehow mended in this adventure? Are we going to ask ourselves questions like, who is the real monster? <laughs> All of that is 100% true. Everything you expect to see in this movie, you will see, and yet I like it. Yeah, I thought this one, um, it had a, a lot going for it. So this is one one of the ones that I mentioned earlier I had never heard about whatsoever. Right. Um, the cover does not look that promising. There's kind of a ridiculous looking <laughs> monster. monster face. Yeah. And I mean, I'm gonna, we'll, we'll get into it. The monster itself doesn't impress me that much. Um, I could tell right away, though, that I would be more inclined, and this might be just also temperamentally as well, because I'm not... I mean, using Alien Covenant as a baseline, I was more inclined to liking this one right away than I was to Alien Covenant, because the first thing that this movie establishes is the personal dynamic and the emotional stakes of the two characters. So this this seemed like a movie about people with a monster in it, as opposed to like a monster movie. Right. Uh, and so it's a pretty obvious and it gets more obvious as it goes allegory about you know who's the real monster it's the mother's alcoholism yeah. it really seems like a, a an allegory for children of alcoholics dealing with that um, and towards the end it does get a bit heavy-handed and there's a lot of flashbacks of mother and daughter together um, where there are different times the mother is disappointing her and one of the things I think they could have fleshed it out a little bit more is there's only ever really one emotion present in the flashbacks, which is is like sadness or the mother letting her down. Whereas I think they could have made it more like a real relationship with with, I mean, any kind of parent, but an, an alcoholic parent. There will be good things and then and bad, the things. bad things will be that much worse. And what you've got is just this this lifetime of instability as opposed to a very predictably bad. Yeah. 
What I liked about the character that Zoe Kazan played, I mean, she's not a very likable character, but what she is is a pretty believable character. Yeah, I absolutely thought so. She reminds me of somebody that I know, and I think she Just in. constantly making the bad choices, constantly making the selfish choices, and being willing to say the worst thing at the worst time. And still hating herself for it after the fact, but like all of these worst things. But I feel like a lesser movie would have softened her, and there would have been a little bit of like both of the characters had their part to play mm -hmm. in this relationship being broken. And for me, it's 100% mom, right? What we see in all those flashbacks is case and case again, where the 10 year old is the mother in the yeah, relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not subtle. And that's the one sort of note that I would give about this movie it is not subtle about anything that happens at all. But it's well executed. Yeah, and I think that lack of subtlety is what turns... I mean, this is this is like a, what seems like should be a bad movie that is a good movie, but it, it can't be a great movie because it's not good enough because it's, it's, it's very one note. So, the, again, it's great, the focus on the emotional relationship, but then, yeah, it's pretty clear what you're saying. And we get it right away. Yeah. We get it after the first flashback, and I think there's four of them, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, yeah, so that's interesting. Cool faces showing up in the movie. I don't know if you were a Battlestar Galactica fan. I was not. <laughs> but the chief from Battlestar Galactica is the unfortunate tow truck driver who shows up <laughs> and uh, is the first to con confirm for us that there is a bad monster out there in the woods. I like seeing him. He's a Canadian actor. He, when he, whenever I see that guy, it's sort of like, give me, ah, this was shot in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I liked him. Um, and again, I think the movie did a good job of making me at least sympathetic for the Zoe Kazan character. Like, the situation she's in is harsh. And I don't know that she successfully, quote, redeems her character, but she does act as a mother mm -hmm. for her daughter at that last thing. That's where things actually get a little bit weird for me at the end. This well, do you want to maybe talk about we'll, plot we'll, time? We'll get there. Uh, sorry? Oh, just do you want to talk about the plot now? Oh, well, that's sort of the simple thing about the plot, that they are stuck in this car, and everybody that comes to help them <laughs> gets killed by this creature. Yeah. So they have to deal with it. They figure out that it's very sensitive to light. So this plan that she has where she's going to run into the woods and distract the creature, although it seemed backwards to me. It seemed like she should have given the torch to her daughter. And she should have just run out in the woods and made noise, and her daughter could run off the other direction with the torch. I actually had a plan C that makes more sense than even your plan right? B, which is that they have a torch and a flashlight, and, and there's actually go. another flashlight, and then they all just they walk out together. Okay, I think I can answer that slightly. Zoe Kazan has been badly injured in the car accident, and I think she believes anyway that she's actively dying. I don't know how clearly that comes across in the narrative. Well, she says it. She says, I'm going to die very soon either way. Right. But when she said it, much like the movie It, which we'll talk about later, but there's stuff where you don't quite know what's going on and then somebody just flat out says tells it. you because it's not obvious. And it felt like a scene that it might have been a pickup shot. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I just thought that was interesting. And then if your mom's going to sacrifice herself for you, honor that sacrifice <laughs> don't then just watch your mom get mauled and then go fight the creature that's what she was trying to prevent from you like she, it just seemed like it still worked i was still on the edge of my seat i was still like watching it and cheering for her but it was just a weird moment 
Oh, I didn't mind that at all. That was actually one of the things I liked about it, is that she sacrificed herself for her kid, and then her kid could have run away, but then she came back to hit the thing with a hammer, which in one hand I think is emotionally believable, but on the other hand it's also emotionally believable anyway that the plan isn't going to work somehow, and it's not a very... It's not tortured the way that the plan doesn't work. It's not like in, uh, I think last time we watched a movie called Life, right, where it where just really seemed like the screenwriter was just making these things happen. But it, it, had she gotten away, had she returned to hit the monster with a hammer, or had something else gone wrong, I could have believed any of that, um, just because of the way this was set up. Right. Here's another question I have for you. Um, is it a happy ending? <laughs> That Ella Valentine gets to go. She'll be living with her father, and she doesn't have to deal with parenting her drunk mother, <laughs> right? Like, if she just driven got driven home to her dad, she'd still have her drunk mother. There'd still be the custody dispute. There'd still be all of this shit. Like, is a monster eating her drunk mother? the best thing that could have happened to this character and is that the moral of the story oh so this is where the movie fell almost a full letter grade in my estimation for an ending that was just so bad uh, i mean it was it just irritated me a lot it it's it was at that moment that i knew that this could not be a great movie when because it leaves with a really annoying voiceover and like Something like, they say there are no monsters, but sometimes there are monsters, and they come to you in the dark, but now I'm not afraid of monsters. And then she walks from the forest into the field, and she's bathed in light. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, so did any of this happen, or was this all an allegory? Did you kill your mom? (laughs) Because in real life, it's not like, like, people say there are no monsters, but then if there are monsters, there are monsters. And But she's saying it in an allegorical way, so it, it honestly... Like I don't, it seemed like magical realism or something. Uh, well, that's the heavy-handedness that I was talking about right out of the gate, right? <laughs> it's just like, is the monster the actual physical monster? <laughs> is the monster abuse? Is the monster alcoholism? Is the monster lack of communication? <laughs> yes, obviously it's alcoholism. Yeah. Alcoholism is a monster. We fucking get it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's sort of, that's like, that's where it hurts. But again, even if you're like, if I take myself back to being 12 or 13 years old and I watched this movie and I saw it as a straight monster movie and didn't think deeply about it at all, it works. And if you want, I mean, uh, if you want, you're being force fed (laughs) the allegory, but it's there for you as well. So like the movie works enough for me. I I think so too. And maybe one last thing, um, because I don't want to end on saying something bad about it. it has one of two movies that we'll see that has a kind of climax with somebody saying, I'm not scared of you anymore as right. a monster. Of the two, this is the one that earned it for me. Right. Um, when By the time the little girl is ready to confront the monster, you feel like she's grown ready to confront the monster, which yeah. then becomes a heavy-handed allegory. And allegorically, she has grown enough emotionally to confront that out monster. But either way... Um, I thought the confrontation was good and the fact that she won so easily was okay because the real emotional climax was her confronting it in the first place. And I do think that actress was really strong. I also think she's supposed to play a 10-year-old and she's clearly older than 10 to me. But the way it made sense in that if you're raised by that, if you're raised in that environment you probably would seem older than you would just because of all the shit that you've been through. So yeah. they kind of got around that casting. And uh, it's probably, you know, easier to cast a 13 or 14-year-old to play this 10-year-old. Right? Well, I think they did a good job of casting the mom 
as somebody who looks much younger than she was in real life right. and a little girl that looks much older than she was in real life. But, and justifying it. Yeah. But their ages, in real, like the ages of those actors actually line up 17 years apart, which is absolutely perfect, perfect. for that mom to have had her kid at that age. Yeah. Overall, I liked it. Again, you're right. You could see that cover in a, in a if if you still rented movies, <laughs> but you could like scan through it on Netflix and say, "Well, that looks kind of dumb." And I guess it's not exactly smart, but it's not as dumb as it presents itself to be. I think it was the monster was pretty good. Yeah. It it was uh, much better than I had expected. I have some complaints with it that kept it from greatness, but I, I, it was well worth my watch. And again, practical effects for the most part, right? Yeah. Did you have any point in this movie where you're like, well, that was bad CGI? Uh, I, I wasn't crazy about the creature design, but also it was a really low-budget movie. Oh, another thing I liked about it is it was almost like a play because so much of it just took place in, in the, the car, car and they were afraid to leave. It was like a, sh- a movie like The Open Boat or The Open... What's the one that Alfred Hitchcock won where there, there's a whole movie that's a mystery? Lifeboat? Lifeboat. Something yeah. like that. Like there's a whole movie that's taking place more or less just in a car, but it doesn't feel boring. Yeah, well, and they cut to the flashbacks, and, you know, every 20 minutes or so, somebody gets brutally <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tasmanian deviled. It's worth your time. Yeah, I think so, too. A creature alive today has survived millions of years of evolution. It lives to kill a mindless eating machine that will attack and devour anything one terrified you like nothing you have ever experienced when it captured your imagination and tapped your fear like no movie before it then just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water two continued the legend and spread the fear next summer nature's most terrifying creature takes on an all-new dimension in an all-new adventure and for the first time, the terror of Jaws will not stop at the edge of the screen. Jaws 3D. The third dimension is terror. Is 1983. 3D is sort of trying to come in vogue, but it's too early. It's just, it's, it's, it was born too early. The 3D effects aren't good enough. Although, uh, sorry, I'm interrupting nope. already. The 3D was originally like 1950s or 60s, mm-hmm. and it was quite bad. And then this was the first 3D renaissance, right? Uh, which was such great box office smashes as Krull and Jaws 3D (laughs) Metal Storm none of the movies were good and none of the 3D was that impressive and even with Jaws 3D it doesn't even have the benefit that Friday the 13th 3D does oh right that was 3D you can buy a a 3D version of Friday the 13th and if you project it on the wall the 3D effects do kind of work and then the movie doesn't feel really stupid whenever the 3D effects happen Jaws 3D never gets over this hump, right? Anytime there's a 3D effects shot, you just have to imagine that it looked really great if you were wearing glasses because <laughs> it looks fucking 
horrible. There's no way that these things looked good in three. Yeah. Uh, also, we just have... Like, I do think this movie was doomed. It was stillborn. There was so many cooks in the kitchen for this. Some people wanting it to be a comedy. Some people wanting it to be in the future. Like, nobody just thought a shark eating people by itself was going to be good enough for Jaws 3D. But here's where it gets really crazy, Matt. They hired Richard Matheson to write the screenplay. Richard Matheson is a guy that I've sort of discovered in the last five or ten years. He's been writing great fiction for real. He's dead now, but uh, I backed into him. Like, I feel like I missed it in like a Stir of Echoes and um, um, shit. Uh, I Am Legend, for Christ's sake. Uh, love the, the Twilight Zone story about the gremlin on the wing of the plane. So is this towards like in sort of the October of his career or is this when he was at his... He's definitely biggest? older. He would say he would be in his late 50s, early 60s probably, I'm guessing. I'm not 100% sure on that timeline-wise. But I don't know what was going on here. There, I, I know that originally it was going to be Jaws 3 People 0. And it was going to be like this airplane style, like comedy. And then it was so gonna... basically Sharknado. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was going to be, like I say, a futuristic aquatic theme park that was trying to do the first housed great white shark. And then they made this, which seems like an uncomfortable marriage of both of those two <laughs> concepts that nothing works across the board. <laughs> nothing works. <laughs> Yeah, I don't have too many notes for this, but one of them, I think it's my third one, which I don't know when I wrote, but is, I don't mind bad, but it's so boring. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing happens. There's like an hour and a half of Dennis Quaid and his brother enjoying each other's company. <laughs> Ding. And half an, half an hour of, yeah, the Brody brothers, Dennis Quaid and his little brother, yeah, rebonding over, you know. Now we work at SeaWorld. Another great irony of this movie. SeaWorld was totally okay with attaching their <laughs> yeah, name to this. Yeah, I was wondering about what, what's going on. Like, is this before lawsuits were invented? Like, in the story, in the story, SeaWorld captures a baby great white uh, shark, and it dies in their aquarium due to their own incompetence. <laughs> <laughs> and SeaWorld's all over. Their name is all over this. And you it, also have, like, an obstructing theme park owner who puts people's lives in danger because he wants to save his profit or something. It's too expensive to... I don't know what, divert some water somewhere or something. I was... By this point, I'm, like, drifting in and out because nothing makes sense anyway. Well, and that's the key thing. <laughs> like... Moment to moment, the movie really doesn't make sense. And the only time it sort of kind of does is when it's stealing from the previous movies, right? Um, yeah, of course, they catch the shark. Movie's over, right? No, they we're, we're 40 minutes into the movie. They have not caught the shark, <laughs> right? Um, I, ha things like having us care about the people who die. <laughs> well, this is really an odd thing that they managed to do. In some ways, it's it's a tremendous feat of filmmaking that almost all of, like, so much of the screen time is spent on characters and relationships, but there's no development of characters or relationships. Like, it's just it's just people reiterating that they like each other's company, essentially. There's, you, you don't really get relationships dynamics. They, they're happy to see each other when they first see each other, and they remain happy to see each other throughout the movie. Yeah. 
Again, and it all hangs on the premise, you know, that somebody who was a child during the initial Jaws attacks would then want to dedicate their life to marine biology because that was a really good thing for them. Well, you know, I haven't seen the classic movie Twister, but wasn't that the point of Twister as well, that Helen Hunt... <laughs> Her dad got carried off by a Twister, and she had to know everything about it. <laughs> Twister is so much better than Jaws 3D, I man. I Twister's a lot better than Jaws 3D. Maybe somebody else, some other studio execs were having this exact conversation, which is where we get Sharknado. <laughs> So usually when I'm watching an 80s disaster piece like this, there's other things that I can sort of like hang on to. There, there's like, I don't know, I like the, the crazy effects in it. Even if they're bad, they're kind of good bad. I can't tell you this here. Or, or that the, the fashion is so crazily out of whack that it becomes this absurd thing to watch. Not that. Leah Thompson's in the movie. It's great to see her. She's young and attractive and everything like that, but that doesn't quite qualify as interesting to me. No, I mean, she looked really good in a bikini, but that's... Like, that's probably the best thing you could say about this movie. The special effects, the 3D special effects really reminded me of a screensaver. Where there's, like, this arm that's floating around that doesn't feel attached to the rest of the film. Or look real or convincing at all. Uh, and I have a hard time believing it looked all that convincing, even by the standards of its day. I'm sure in the theater it looked pretty bad. <laughs> I had to tap on Simon McCorkendale, who sadly died in 2010. I had no idea. Uh, he plays this guy who is going to help hunt the shark in this movie, and it took me a little while. I knew I recognized him from somewhere. He starred in a one-season 1980s TV show called Manimal. Yes, that is a deep pull. But this is where I have to go. It's like, ooh, that's Leah Thompson. Ooh, that's Manimal. Like, I have to do so much work to try and make this movie interesting for me. And Louis Gossett Jr., who at the time was very respected, very, like, uh, recently hot off his Oscar. I guess it's one of those, like, high-profile movies you, you make when you're popular. Like... Everybody's going to watch Jaws 3, so I should be in it, but what do you contribute to the movie? What is your character? What, like... Uh, no, but maybe we can say another good thing to come. This is purely speculative, but Lou Gossett Jr. and, and uh, Dennis Quaid became such good friends that they decided to do the movie Enemy Mine together a few years ago, which was uh, the same two is stars. I would say considerably better. It wasn't good, but it was considerably it was better. better. It was considerably better. Oh, and just the pace. The, the fucking, like, even during the action sequences. It's so boring. There's the scene where the shark is swimming towards, like, the view screen. And, like, it's like everybody's looking at it and then cutting to the slow motion shark and looking back at the slow motion shark and it's like this is like it's like that Austin Powers the, the guy on the uh, what is it steamroller steamroller yeah just, just leave you have all the time in the world you don't have to wait till it hits the glass you can tell that's what it's doing it's <laughs> clearly gonna take ten minutes to get there <laughs> like in Monty Python where every time you look at it again it's a little bit further so it can keep coming towards you but let's not laugh too much because I don't want to give people the impression <laughs> that it's so bad it's good. It is not. It is fucking Just not. 2 is so bad it's good. Just 2 is a delightfully terrible movie. Just 1 is a good movie. Just 2 is so bad it's good. And don't see any more Jaws movies. So here's the thing. This is this is what happened though. I gotta say, like <laughs> You would watch this movie and I could see somebody coming out of the theater just shaking their head and saying, 
There is no fucking way. There's no fucking way they could make a worse Jaws movie than this. <laughs> there is no way. And then Jaws the Revenge said, oh yeah. <laughs> I'll take that money. So it doesn't even have the distinction of being the worst Jaws movie. <laughs> like, there's nothing to recommend here. Like, I like Dennis Quaid, but every other Dennis Quaid movie is going to be slightly more interesting than this. You know, I love cheesy 80s monster movies. There's nothing good about the special effects or the execution. No, this is there's nothing to recommend this movie. The only thing I got a little bit of amusement is their sound effects were so ridiculous that they were funny. So there would be like there's an early scene where Jaws is eating somebody and clearly you've got somebody crunching an apple into a microphone. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't sound at all like you would imagine a shark eating somebody. Even the first Jaws had incredible things, like like the, the, the shark swimming with the air tank canister, just chewing on the corner of its mouth, like, it was ridiculous. But in this movie, the Simon McCorpintail character is swallowed, but seems to be, like, half in and out of the shark's mouth for a considerable amount of the plot. <laughs> like, he still has a grenade in his hand, which they're able to use to finally kill the shark at the end, because he's just in the shark's mouth for the, like, fuck off. Fuck off, Jaws 3. <laughs> Jaws is like a squirrel storing his nuts. Like, I'm starting to get angry now. It's just like, I, I apologize for making you watch this movie, man. It's okay. I stopped watching it very carefully. I don't know, after the first three hours, before the last six hours, I started playing tapping games. It's true. Like, again, not to spoil it for you, Matt, but this is so fucking clearly the worst movie on this list. And it has one of the shortest running times, but it is one of the longest watches. Yeah. My advice, speaking as someone who loves Jaws, who loves shark movies, who will watch terrible shark movies, don't watch Jaws 3D. Uh, I would second that emotion. (laughs) We're here! What? Are you alright? Oh, something bit me. Aww, are you okay? Yeah. Just a little bite. Hey, have you been sick at all since our trip? I'm fine. It's just a small bug bite. Well, it looks infected. I need to speak to a doctor as soon as possible. (laughs) I stopped by her apartment yesterday. I smelled something coming from inside. What happened? She's a monster. Who is? So, body horror. <laughs> um, it's a weird subgenre, but I understand why it's an effective one. <laughs> like, the idea of disease or sickness or decay or some change that you have no control over. Yeah. I kind of feel like Cronenberg, although he's been fixated with it his entire career, kind of perfected it with his remake of The Fly. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know that there could be a better version of a body horror movie for me. Um, 
but I will say that bite's a pretty good swing. <laughs> yeah, uh, there are some places where I think it borrows shamelessly, but there's some places where it at least resonated with me more than the fly did. And part of it is a, um, particularly in the winter, an eczema sufferer, like the, just those gross pustules on her. In this case, it was her hips. I get it on my hands a little bit. Yeah. Um, but just this feeling of just being leaky and disgusting and slimy. And the helplessness, helplessness of it. Um, so yes, a young woman who, can you remember where they were for their trip? Costa Rica. Costa Rica. She's uh, out having her bachelorette party or pre-wedding trip. And she's out in a swimming pool and some water and she gets a little bite on her hip. And it seems innocuous enough. She goes on with her life and her party. She gets back home and we start, and she and notices some physical changes and her friends start noticing some psychological changes and sort of little things. Maybe she was having a little bit of cold feet about the marriage, but all of a sudden that becomes exacerbated. Maybe there's a little bit of friction with she and her friend, but that becomes exacerbated. Hey, sorry, there's another really big one. Um, speak, this is an aspect of body horror that I can't speak to, no. but she's under a lot of pressure from her fiancé to have a child, Correct. which she's not sure of, and then she's going to start laying all of these... Um, yeah, these, like, I don't know what they were, like moths or something like that. But I think I think there is... And forgive me if this is offensive, but a certain body horror aspect of pregnancy as right. well. Right. Oh, absolutely. We're um, going to talk about that with It's Alive, I think. Right. That's right. Oh, by the way, there's another theme to this list uh, beyond um, just monsters. But these are all about parenthood, creation, or motherhood. All of these either have children Touch or conception. It. Yeah. I guess, yeah, even the robots fathering the aliens yeah. in the, in the I, aliens. The longest stretch, I suppose, is Jaws 3D, but it's no. got the children of the, the, the little The little Jaws gets killed. Oh, yeah, that's right. And the right. Mama Jaws comes to that's get revenge. Right. Yeah. Jaws 3 was really the revenge. It wasn't three, that 3D. It was much more revenge. <laughs> let's, let's go back. Let's not talk about Jaws the 3D any more than we already have. Um, Bite is a Canadian-made film. Chad Archibald, this is his third film of his that I've seen. The Drownsman, I wasn't a huge big fan of. Ejecta kind of went right down the middle. This one I liked, but I feel like uh, it's got this snowball effect to me. I kind of was a little bit resistant to it, but the deeper we got into the movie, the more I felt its sort of claws sink into me. Uh, so I had a bit of a different experience, although a very similar one. Uh, I think this is one I was alluding to in our preamble, um, where... I wasn't sure what to expect, but I had the feeling that the filmmaker had a vision of it. So this movie starts out quite slow. It's it's we're almost 25 minutes before the body horror even really shows up. And so that first 20 minutes or so, I was really enjoying where this is going to go. When the body horror kicks in, it gets a lot better. But then at about two thirds of the way through, um, our protagonist is going to become a monster and things start to get, I think, considerably less interesting. I don't want to say worse, because it's not bad, but it's a lot less interesting. It's another one for that tired chestnut. It's more the journey than the destination, because mm -hmm. I think almost right, very much right away, from the second she gets the bite, even, we kind of know where this is going. It's also interesting, she's in this skimpy little bikini, and she's very tiny and clean and beautiful in that shot, because the transition that we're going to see in her 
And that is what I think is of the most impressive things of the movie to me. From seeing her, this pale, skinny chick in a, in a bikini, to this monstrous thing secreting all of these eggs and appendages and, like... <laughs> and it's the opposite of... Oh, God, there's one from the 90s with Natasha Henstridge... Species. Species, where the monster is really a sexy woman, but they really do a great job of making her not sexy. She and loses her environment. most of her hair. Her She becomes, like, not just riddled with pock marks but like pocks where spikes come out sometimes and kill people in disgusting ways <laughs> so every and she keeps vomiting on people's faces that i mean that was very the right fly. out of the fly absolutely uh, and but, peeling off her fingernails that was out of the fly but i think they were they owned that a little bit i think that they knew that that was right out of the fly and weren't pretending that anything of it you yeah know? and i guess i understand that these things would be sort of repeated what are horrible physical things that we can visualize for people the fingernail thing is there's something about it that just fucking gets yeah. to people. Right? Uh, for me, the pustules, the pustules were, they did those really well. The weird eye twitch thing. That yeah, happened. she had. I don't think this is going to show up on the audio too much, but also her verbal tick that. Yeah. <laughs> to pretend we're doing really great sound effects of like a cricket or something. The the woman that because I, I think it was the the um, actor doing her own. Yeah, I'm voice. sure they helped it with sound design, but I feel like that was her performance. Yeah. No, that said, when she turned into the monster, I didn't really like the way the monster looked. I didn't. I thought her yellow eyes looked too much like yellow contacts. She looked a little bit too much like somebody painted up to be a monster. Right. So the the in like so when she was in the hoodie and you could just see bits of her face, that was really good. When you're curious about where this is going, or when you see the first nubbin of a trail tail protruding out of her uh, the lower spine, yeah. it looked better than when it eventually became a scorpion tail, at which point it just looked like a rubber scorpion tail. Well, again, I talked about it having a snowball effect and me getting more into it the deeper it gets, but it also gets more familiar the deeper it gets into it, right? You kind of know that this uh, friction between her girlfriend and the betrayal there, that's, that's not going to end well, right? Oh, no, like, she, that was a really weird scene because her girlfriend... So this is when our protagonist, who I was very happy, locked herself in her room. She wasn't going out being a predator. Right. Um, I don't know why. I was just been annoyed if she went out hunting people. There was something about her hiving up in there that made things even grosser, and and I liked it better. But then somewhere else in the city, I'm not sure where, her best friend started having sex with her fiancé, fiance, and then she had some sort of psychic connection or something. I didn't really understand what was going on there. Yeah, well... And I don't know that it's completely clear. <laughs> it's almost like a superhero or supervillain origin story, I guess, in a lot of ways, as she's being changed. She's learning her powers at the same time we are. Who knows? All the weird fucking bug shit that she could do. Um, so the, it's the inevitability, I guess, that the film has to fight against. <laughs> um, but I think you're right in that it did a good job of making me feel bad for our central character, mm -hmm. in that... I felt that she was helpless to what was happening to her. She didn't give in to it in any real way until it was... Yeah, which made it really sad when her one friend, who I actually like, came over to help her. And if, predictably, obviously, she kills her one friend because her one friend discovers this other body in this really disgusting, wonderfully <sighs> disgusting bathtub full of eggs and yeah. webs and stuff. And then she's... She kills her friend and is sort of apologizing as her friend dies in a miserable way. And then we see her corpse webbed up on the wall as the film progresses, getting progressively devoured by these little insects that are 
we're going to color our protagonist. <laughs> Casey, the main character, is puking out these eggs <sighs> that become bugs. Ugh. And the whole house, I like, too. It's not just her that changes. Her environment gets all runny and sticky <laughs> and melty. And I'm sure they used, uh, if there's any sushi fans out there, the um, they have a lot of insect eggs. I think they used... Not the little ones that you get on California rolls, but the ones that are a little bit bigger that pop in your mouth and they're mm. kind of gross and taste like salt water. But they just have a whole bunch of them all over the place. And I could just imagine how stinky that set was. Cause I, I, <laughs> Under I, the lights and everything? I oh. don't even think those were tapiocas. I think those were actual fish eggs. And so there's that dream sequence where all those people are stomping all those fish eggs. Yeah. It must have been like... Texas Chainsaw Massacre or or American Werewolf in London where the props are so stinky. Trigger warning, absolutely. This movie is in a really tactile kind of way <laughs> fucking vile and disgusting. But it needs to be for the story that it's telling. It's certainly not inappropriate. I'm not offended <laughs> by it or anything like that. And again, if you're going to play in the same sort of range as the fly, you kind of got to bring that. And for a low-budget movie, this really did bring that. I didn't see any large weak links in the act in the cast. The script was familiar, but I think fairly well executed. And again, the ick factor is high, but it helps the movie. So overall, I like Bite. I think it does get better as it progresses to me. And uh, see, I, I, I'm going to say it gets that? a little bit worse. There's, there's a, a definite peak... Right. Maybe about the time that she kills her sympathetic friend, I don't think I don't think the stakes are ever that high again. Yeah, I, I mean, it, I guess it hurts in that you know, you know where this movie is going, but you can't look away and don't want to. So well, and then it's oh, sorry, I keep no, interrupting. That's the thing. Well, that's the thing. It can be gross and icky, but if you can't look away, the movie kind of has you, and I guess that's where the movie has me. I, I'm not I'm not foaming at the mouth over it, and I can't imagine it's a movie that you would want to watch again and again and again. But I think it's a fairly strong, uh, you know, for a body horror movie on a budget, I say bravo. Well, it has also a couple of, a terrible ending and then an even more terrible twist ending. (laughs) Yeah. The terrible ending is almost hilariously terrible when you've got like, about a week later, I guess, the police start investigating this smelly apartment uh, and you've got people in the room. Some of them are wearing full hazmat suits. Some of them are wearing like painters' outfits, like those white things that you buy at the paint shop with a little painter's mask. And then you've got some cops that don't have any protection at all. And you think, okay, Pick I, a lane. yeah, I get it. But, <laughs> I mean, if you can get your hands on one yellow hazmat suit, just shoot a few shoot that in a way that it looks like more than one person but it looks really ridiculous to have all of those people there but that's kind of a nitpick because i mean that's almost like a charmingly dumb low budget thing where they're just making do and they didn't think it through but then at the end the fiance gets stabbed with the scorpion tail and then the police eventually figure out that his room in the same apartment building something's going on there so then they go in and we see him being all webbed up and he's got all the same body horror stuff and then his face explodes into a swarm of really terrible cgi looking locusts and then there's like this really dumb twist ending with two joggers talking about wanting to go to costa rica and then a cgi bug stabs one and then she says don't worry it's just a bite dun dun and then the title Bite! (laughs) (laughs) We'll never escape the horror, but no. (laughs) It's a memorable horror movie. I would recommend it. At the end of the day, 
If you like body horror movies and you like low-budget Canadian cinema, I can absolutely endorse Bite. It had some real highs and... Not real lows. lows. It had real highs and a lot of minor lows. The lows are forgivable when you're on this kind of budget and when you're trying to do something that ambitious. Like I said, I'm harder on Alien Covenant because they had millions of dollars instead of hundreds. Good enough? Good enough. It's not like any time I've ever been in before. People die or disappear six times the national average. And that's just grown-ups. Kids are worse. Way, way worse. We all float down here. I saw something. There was this... very first episode of Rankin Review, if you listen to it uh, from way back in September of 2013, I'm super excited about the announcement of this It movie getting made. And if you listen to the Stephen King episode where I talked about It, you know, it's ties to my childhood, both the novel and the TV miniseries. So it's a story that I love. It's a book that I love. It's personal to me. I come in really 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 wanting this movie to be good and as a Stephen King fanboy so uh, that's both good and bad for the movie my anticipation of it literally four years (laughs) from from when I was talking about it on the podcast to when it finally came out and uh, I went to see it with uh, the current Rankin Review champion Lee Beckman and I came out of the theater mostly happy with the movie (laughs) mostly happy with the movie um I can't really decide if it's my love of it that's making the me have some problems with the movie, just that I'm just too invested in the book and the story, or if, in fact, like as far as a big screen R-rated adaptation of the first half of it, anyway, or half of the story of it, I don't know necessarily what it could done to have been more authentic to the original story, but it's still not quite there for me. But it's there enough that I'm really happy general overall with it. And I would never tell someone not to watch it. But there's this version of it that exists in my brain that still hasn't quite been quenched. Does that mean that this movie sucks? No. In fact, I have a lot of good things to say about it. But I found myself fighting with it. So that's where I start on It Chapter 1. <laughs> yeah, I. Um, this one will be a hard one for me to rank uh, because... For me, it's it's an almost perfect 
combination of a highly competent movie and a highly incompetent movie, there are some, like, you can tell this is a filmmaker that knows how to make movies. Some of the shots are really good. Some of the shots are creative. Um, I was quite looking forward to this um, because I, I mean, I've subsequently read the novel. I grew up at the right time for the 1990 um, movie, which the TV movie, which I had, no, I had no idea what it was before I watched the movie. And I that one really stuck with me, particularly the first half that dealt more with the kids. Um, but the it was real, quite a letdown in terms of both the relationship between the children for me and where I would say, where I think it's highly incompetent is in... I. I didn't get a sense that this filmmaker understands what makes things scary. Uh, so from even before the movie came out, from the promotional material, the first time I saw Pennywise, which looked like a clown that was designed by a special effects department to design a scary clown, it was sort of this demonish-looking clown, it seemed like they don't... Wh- whoever was in charge of that doesn't understand why clowns are scary. Right. And if you don't understand why clowns are scary then maybe you don't understand what scary is, which I got from a lot of the clown jumps out and goes boo scenes with like really loud clanging noises, like no subtlety, no creepiness. So it was a filmmaker that really knows how to make a film, but it, for me, it didn't. he didn't really know how to make a scary film. So I found it quite unsatisfying that way. It is one of Stephen King's capital H horror novels, but especially the stuff that happens in the 50s. It's transposed to the 80s for this this incarnation of it, uh, but especially stuff dealing with the kids. Um, there's a very weird, goofy adventure quality, almost a Scooby-Doo gang adventure, but the stakes are impossibly grim and ugly and harsh. Mm-hmm. And I feel like he's more comfortable with these kids as buddies and sort of finding each other and connecting with each other. And the kid, uniform, all of the kids, uniformly really good. The really, performances really good. were terrific. Really, really good. Yeah. Um, but I think that that stuff really worked for me, like the kids connecting and, and you know understanding that they're on their own with dealing with this creature. But when it comes to actually the dealing with Pennywise directly is where we get a little bit shakier. I will also defend Skarsgård, by the way, in this movie. I agree with the, the approach to the clown being too effectively scary because part of the idea is that he would be a lure and no kid would walk up to this clown even if they weren't scared of clowns i just don't believe any kid walking up to this clown so the first scene with georgie when the you know the iconic scene where the paper boat sails into the drain and then the clown in the drain retrieves it it in the 1990s one there's a reason why um, Tim Curry's clown became an iconic monster uh, or horror creature um, because there was like that surreal quality or that uncanny quality that clowns have. But in this, when Georgie saw the clown in the sewer, it's like, oh, there's a demon monster in the sewer that was wearing clown makeup. It is clearly just a demon monster. He's literally drooling to mm. the scene. He's literally drooling. There's nothing inviting about this clown. And that might be a little bit of a problem. But I, I mean. Because, like, why make him a clown if he's just going to be a monster? In his defense, though, I have the feeling like if he just done exactly what 
Tim Curry had done, we'd be sitting here saying he was just doing a vague photocopy of what had already been attempted in 1990. I'm not sure that those are the only two choices, though. No, I mean, maybe there's a middle ground. This isn't it. But there are two thing there are times where he does really work for me but it's less in the direct interactions with the kids is more when he's sort of waving hello when he dips that bundle of balloons in front of his face or when he waves at mike with the severed arm from the bushes a little is going a long way with pennywise in this movie yeah and his body work is really good when he's doing the dancing yeah um because he actually looks like a marionette and i don't know I don't know how much of that was done in post or how much of that is actually body work, but those those scenes worked for me. But he also just, like, those lines that go down his face to give him this permanent demon-y look, it, it, it just didn't... It, it looked like it was designed by a 17-year-old or something. Or like that, when they go in the haunted house that looks like Disney's haunted castle because yeah. it's like some set people are like, okay, design a haunted house that looks exactly like a haunted house that can be nothing other than a haunted house. But we, this is the house on Nybold Street, and this is this is where it falls back to my King fandom. That was a sequence that I dearly, dearly missed having in the uh, miniseries version of the book. And the house, as overwrought haunted house as it looks, is not unlike it is described as this black hole piece of the block in the, in, in, in the book. Um, it's a little bit over-affected, but it's not too far from what I pictured in my head when I was reading it. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I can't comment on what you were picturing in your head, you obviously. You can't see my dreams? I mean, I, I, I try. <laughs> uh, it didn't have a lived-in quality. Like, it looked like... A set. Yeah. And so, when they have scary experiences in it, it's hard not to think, okay, you're in... Again, Disney's haunted castle. It's it's just too, it's too so perfectly like a haunted house that it's hard to really engage with it yeah. for me. I feel like we're being really negative though. I do want to say I actually really like the movie <laughs> to a large extent, and I do think that getting that many child actors that are that strong was could not have been an easy thing to do, yeah. and that they had to rush through their each individual scares or what scares these kids. And it could have just been, here's the next boost scene, here's the next boost scene. But I thought they were all individually different and individually effective. Uh. Yeah, I agree. Um, what This is not... Uh, I was talking to Rayleigh Perkins, friend of the show. Okay. I don't know if she's been a guest yet. I keep telling her to be a guest. But she had the observation that they should have probably shot this movie like Stand By Me with the monster in the background but what's really foregrounded is these kids relationship with each other but that stuff felt a little shoehorned in um, and part of it is because like they're the losers club so they have no friends they're all outsiders but what we actually see on screen is this group of what started as four friends or five friends and they keep getting bigger Uh, and they get picked on by the murderous insane bully but you i i didn't get a strong sense that they were losers by the town standards just that this this psychopathic mean guy and his gang of 16 year olds like to beat up on the 13 year olds right uh so a little like they spend a lot of time with the kids but i think they could have i i think they should have foregrounded that and had the horror stuff being more subtle in the background right 
But again, and I understand what you're saying there. And from a cinematic perspective, that's an easier thing to do. But what I love about the book is it seems like once a chapter, something fucking horrible has to happen. <laughs> and there, and, and I, I, that's what I like in my Stephen King, as dark as that sounds. Well, I, and maybe this is an endemic problem with taking a 9,000-page book and right. putting it into a two-hour movie, that they, they, they had to make a ton of cuts, and they made a ton of righteous cuts. And I, I'm also being... Focusing on the negative, uh, I open this by saying that it was highly competent, but I don't think I'm playing that up enough. There, there. I mean, we can talk about some of the um, the ways they were framing things, like with the, um, you know, there's a scene where who's the kid that's punching this sheep with the Mike? Sh- Mike um, is killing the sheep, or he he doesn't he have the heart. Refuses to, yeah. And then it shows the sheep going through the pen, and then the very next cut is the kids coming out of class. Um, which is, it sounds like a very heavy-handed juxtaposition, but actually wasn't that heavy-handed. It was just like a nice parallelism. Or there is a creepy painting in... Um, Stan's in Stan's dad's office, and there is he's looking at it, but then there's a scene where he's being looked at from the painting's point of view, and then the painting kind of comes to life, and that was just a really nice... Again, it wasn't done too much. That was the kind of subtle thing that I thought was done really well. They also did some good and bad Easter eggs for people who love the book. And uh, I think it's a double-edged sword when you do that because it reminds you of the book and it also reminds you of the stuff that you're not going to get to see. When Mike sees the burning hands trying to reach through the the locked door of the the butcher shop or whatever, that's a reference to the black spot chapter in the book. And uh, when the one kid sees the... uh, severed head or the 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 headless body that's a reference to one of the kids who died uh, in an an explosion that happened in one of the dairy the history things Mm -hmm. patrick hockstetter is a character that we see and is one of the first people killed by it in the movie he would hear his name but if you know the book you know that hockstetter has a ridiculous and horrible backstory (laughs) and that uh, uh, whatever grim fate we imagine in this movie it's fucking worse in the book, right? So it's kind of nice. Hey, there's Patrick Hockstetter, but they're not going to really give you that, right? It's nice that they reference the black spot, but they're not going to really give you that. But the Stephen King fans there are like, the other really subtle thing is the turtle. In the book, this guiding force, the kids just name it the turtle, and that it actually takes physical shape when, when uh, Stuttering Bill enters the Nexus, he sees a giant turtle. But yeah, uh, Stuttering Bill, when he's thinks he sees the ghost of his brother is holding onto a Lego block that's in the shape of a turtle. When mm-hmm. they're swimming in the t- in the water... What the quarry, water, I think? quarry it was, yeah. They say, hey, look, there's a turtle. So, like, they nudge it. They mm-hmm. nudge it. They, they acknowledge it. But they can't fully bathe in it the way that, you know, us weird or hardcore Stephen Kings would... I think you were right when we were talking about this briefly before we recorded that this kind of wants to be a mini-series. It really needs to sprawl even more than two feature-length yeah. movies will allow. Um, but considering it is a movie and it is half of the book, I really like it. I'm going to say that and I'm going to go on to one more thing that I find problematic. Okay. And then I've got a couple more, but... Um... I'm, not, I'm also not going to be totally negative. We like this gonna... movie. We're going to say a bunch of shitty things about <laughs> it, but then we're going to say we like it and you should watch it. Beverly Marsh. I don't remember the name of the actress, but she does an amazing job in the, in the movie. She's very young and she is very attractive. <laughs> it's hard to deny. It. I mean, uh, not a sexual creature, but like uh, she's, she's beautiful in her own way. And uh, all of the boys are in love with her and that totally comes across yeah that's one thing that works well in the relationship forming 
where you can tell that they're into her, but they don't want to, they're not comfortable with it. But anyway, sorry. They make a crucial change with Beverly in this movie. And they try to make it up by making her incredibly strong. And she is incredibly strong. She stabs Pennywise through the fucking head with a fence post. And like she fucking kills her dad in this version of the story, right? Like she's incredibly strong. Until she's kidnapped by Pennywise and needs to be rescued by all of the boys? Yeah, why wasn't any... I mean, so this is something that isn't in the book anyway, so why isn't it literally anybody else in the club? And it could literally be anybody else in the club. But why does it go go back to the damsel in distress and the boys questing into the demon's lair? And then, you know... Well, this... If I can use this to transition into one of the other big kind of recurring problems that I had um, is because the movie doesn't have a chance to breathe we'd never really have any idea about what the rules are with Pennywise um, so there's we keep getting these scenes where he's almost killing these kids but then he doesn't because he can't get to them and then there's like a ridiculous scene in the haunted house where he's got the one kid cornered and then he's just like booga booga boogieing him even though he killed Georgie before he could kill him mm. but because in the book he feeds off their fear but at this point it's not obvious at all right. so he just says yum 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 your fear is delicious and then we're like okay two hours in I guess he's into fear um, but then he, when he's got Beverly at the end He's like, I can't, you're, you're not afraid of me, so I'm not powerful enough to kill you. But the whole idea of her not being afraid of him is kind of ridiculous because, okay, why doesn't he just rip her arm off? Then yeah. she'll be afraid of him. Like, that's, that's not actually a good moral about not having fear. Um, it just doesn't make sense in terms of the movie. And typically the movie's tendency had been to subtract but not add Mm-hmm. And this was a really egregious case of them making an addition that I think was wholeheartedly misguided. I still really liked the movie, and like I liked the movie enough that when that happened, like I, I was still I wasn't going to storm out of the theater. But that really stuck with me because in the original book, like Bev's the only really good one with the slingshot, so she's basically their weapon going into that. They're crowding around to make sure that Bev is the safest because she's the one who's got to pull the trigger on this creature. That's completely taken from her. Again, they seem to recognize this by making her actually kill her dad and actually stab Pennywise earlier. They don't want to cheapen her strength, but they still want to put her in this position of rescue. Yeah, um, and that... I mean, the slingshot thing is also, um, how to put it, so in the last scene, well, this is more on the movie telling you stuff at the end that hasn't figured out how to work in. So when they're in the haunted house and, and the clown is like, um, got that one kid cornered, Eddie, I think it is. Yeah, with a busted arm. (laughs) Yeah, which looked horrifying. (laughs) Uh, But he's not killing him. And then she stabs Pennywise in the face with a poker and then he runs away and then she's like he's scared of us when we're all together well like how did you know that uh it could just be that you stabbed him in the eye with a poker so he ran away um but I think they missed a terrific opportunity which they had in both the book and the 90s um one and just like stories in general where where they're going to confront him and so in the original story they're making silver bullets for the slingshot because they figured out that 
Silver doesn't kill him because he's got any kind of inherent weakness, but there's something about their connection together where they can manifest the reality. Yeah. But then they don't have any of that in the movie, so then they just come in with sticks and hit him with metal poles. They try to bring replace the slingshot with the bolt killer that, that Mike didn't want to use before. That's the weapon that yeah. the boys bring down with them, but it doesn't hold the same talismanic significance as the one in the original. Uh, another missed opportunity. I think they were trying to keep the movie under two and a half hours long. There's rumors that when the second one comes out, they're going to do a director's cut of both and release it as one huge movie, so maybe we'll get more. But uh, in the novel, Henry Bauer, Victor Chris, and Belch Higgins follow the kids into, this, into the sewers, and they all get nice, terrible <laughs> deaths. <laughs> well, Henry Bauer ends up being rendered insane, not killed, but... There's just more meat for the grinder for Pennywise. Yeah. And there was no reason not to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why they didn't do that. But they, it, there's apparently... But there's the, that one kid that wanders into the sewer and then gets killed. Yeah, that's Patrick Hockstetter. But uh, in the novel, yeah, Belch and Victor get killed in the in the sewers while the kids are trying to find their way to, the, to Pennywise. In this one, apparently, there's a deleted scene where Henry actually kills them. Henry kills the other members of his gang before he goes down into the sewer to try and kill the rest of the kids. And again, I just think we paid our ticket to see Pennywise wreak havoc on on, on, on Derry. And really, they're top-loaded. The worst thing we see in the whole movie is Georgie. Yeah. That's the horrif- most horrifying moment of the movie in a lot of ways. Uh, there's some good jump scare moments th- throughout it, don't get me wrong, but like as far as the violence on kids, that's it. Even Patrick Hockstetter's fate is left to our imagination. We know nothing good <laughs> happens, but... Um, so I think that this is one of those movies that's going to have this reputation. Like it or not, this is a classic horror movie. It made way too much money this and one, made too I, much ripples. I, I, I disagree. I don't think this is going to go down as a classic. Well, it's, it's a huge in the zeitgeist right now. <laughs> anyway, okay, jumping the needle then. I like the humor in the movie, <laughs> the, the kids' banter. <laughs> and, like, uh, do you use the same toilet as your mom? <laughs> you probably have crabs. <laughs> and, like, uh, the charming warmth within the group, which is not easy to accomplish on screen. It's really hard to create chemistry. Yeah. And it's, like, really strong in all of the kids. Um, it, the, if you know the story, and I think most people kind of have a vague idea of the other ones, we kind of know in a way that the Losers Club is going to remain intact. So maybe having some more people to the wayside, maybe the that's why we have those actually sort of standalone short story chapters in the novel where some kid who's not involved with the Losers Club meets a grim fate with Pennywise because he's by himself. <laughs> right? I, I think that I'm... gives us more context to how Pennywise does his shit. Another thing that would have helped, there's an iconic scene where the bullies are chasing them. I can't remember if they're going to beat up Mike. In this one, it was Mike. I don't know. In the original. But the all the kids are together, and they start throwing rocks at the bullies, and yeah. it introduces the idea that they're stronger together. But in this, it happened like four-fifths of the way through, and Mike was at the beginning, and then he weirdly disappeared, and I his character that. was given to... Um, the fat kid yeah. who became the historian which was really Mike's role yeah. and so it was like they they should have had that way earlier um, I think they could have had they could have had some of the kids be friends already but sort of have the group expanding more towards the beginning and and making this friendship of theirs not just 
I mean, you're right. Like, they had good banter together and they did feel like friends, but they didn't really feel like they were coming together as friends, which was thematically crucial for for the story of It. It's yeah. more crucial than the clown in a lot of ways. The bonding of this group and that oath that they make together at the end of the movie, sort of sealing it. Yeah. Um, it has that problem that I've said about a lot of horror movies where it's hard to fear for the kids in the movie. Even though it opens with a kid getting his arm bitten off, it's hard to fear for them. And then also because Pennywise keeps almost getting them, but and not. if he wanted to get them, why doesn't he kill them? And then it felt to me like this was a problem they had in editing, and they're like, oh yeah, this doesn't look like it makes any sense. And we know from the novel that he likes them to be scared, yeah. but he didn't mind killing Georgie right away. He didn't mind killing some of the other ones right away. So it seems like the rules are he can do whatever he wants, but just not to these kids. Right, and they're protected. This turtle, this energy between them, whatever it is. I guess uh, it's on, it feels like it would be more dependent for people who had read the novel, but obviously, like I said, it was a monster hit. People loved it. There's going to be another one in uh, next a year from September. Um, and again, like enough of it really works for me. I, I like the way they updated scenes. You know, instead of having them flip through the pages of the old photo album, it's a slideshow, and then Pennywise fucking erupts out of the screen. And a really good boo scare moment for me mm-hmm. there. Um, you know, the the scene where uh, Stan breaks his arm—is <laughs> it Stan? I can't remember. No, it's the, it's the Eddie. hypochondriac. Eddie. It's Eddie. Yeah, Eddie breaks his arm. Uh, it's horrifying when he breaks his arm and he realizes it, but it's further horrifying when one of the kids thinks that they can fix it by snapping <laughs> oh it back in place. Oh, that brought the house down in the theater for all the horrible shit. It was them snapping his arm back into place that really fucking brought the house down. They actually did that in The Monster as well. Yeah, that's right. The mother, when she breaks her wrist in the car accident, Snaps gets it relocated. <laughs> Ow. Um... But again, I feel like we spent 20 minutes talking about all of the stuff that didn't work in the movie. And I want to be really clear that it does work. It's because I love this so much that I spent all the time nitpicking the shit that didn't. I liked Skarsgård for the most part in that he took a different direction on Pennywise. And uh, like you say, the physicality, the weird dance moves that he does. Um, the idea, I remember seeing the actor uh, interviewed and he said that he liked, there's a mention in the novel that... Pennywise is like its favorite thing mask to wear mm-hmm. and why is the clown his favorite mask and you can sort of, I, I, I kind of felt that coming through a little bit um, the final confrontation is I guess a good fight <laughs> yeah I mean it's 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 appropriate to the movie like it's sort of what you would expect in the movie Scaled down, much like everything a little bit too, that rock fight you were talking about, the chapter in the book is literally called the apocalyptic rock fight, and it almost plays off playfully in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the stakes feel higher, generally, throughout the novel, but uh, I like the adventure and the journey that we're going on here. This ch- half of the movie is going to feel more like sort of the, the adventure movie, the Monster Squad version of things. I think when we get to It Chapter 2, they're going to have to go lean into the horror. They're going to have to alien covenant (laughs) to say the thing. But despite the fact that I've spent 20 minutes talking about all the stuff that I didn't like, I really like the movie. I just, uh, I I don't know that there's a motion picture that will satisfy me for It. Maybe we need HBO to spend like 20 20 hours telling the story. I certainly don't think it would hurt. Although, I mean, the novel, there's a lot of stuff that I think could be righteously cut from the novel because the novel the history stuff. is quite rambly um 
I mean, one of the reasons why I'm focusing on the negative here, uh, like I said at the beginning, this list is comprised of, it seems like movies that punch above their weight and punch below their weight. And this is a good movie. And like, so the monster had the potential for greatness, but it was already a pleasant surprise that it was much better right. than I would have expected going in. Whereas this had a potential for greatness and everything seemed to be in place that it could be great. And then there's just all of these disappointing decisions that get made at every turn. So it is like it is a good movie. Of all the movies on the list, it's one that I would have the least trouble recommending to most people. Yeah. But um, I mean, one of the reasons why I said earlier I don't think it's going to go down as a classic is because I don't know. Maybe maybe you could answer this and there's something I'm not thinking of, but imagine you're teaching a master's class on horror as you could easily teach right now. And you had this movie it on the syllabus. Right. What would you point to? Like what's, what's one really memorable set piece or what's one really memorable thing that it brings to the table? Cause it seems to me that it does a lot of things competently, but it doesn't, I don't think there's really any innovation. Right. Well, I think as far as the challenge of bearing down a novel of this, size you know and again they're only doing about half of it or a third of it really there's yeah. three novels in in it right there's the kids novel the adults novel and the history of dairy i mean for example they <laughs> very wisely decided not to bring in the wolfman which is prominently featured in the book but again they're going what what kids in the 50s would be scared of against the kids yeah. of the 80s would be scared of yeah please watch it I feel like we were talking people out of it, but we're almost at a half an hour. Is oh there my anything God. Okay. else that we need to say about it? <laughs> no. Uh, it... Despite everything we've said, it's great. I like Andrew Buschetti. I really like his movie Mama. I'm glad that they're keeping him for the next half. I think that we have a much better chance of making the adult half of it more interesting because that's where, as we've talked about, the miniseries kind of shit the bed yeah once, no no once, questions there yeah once we get into the adults it just stops working and i'm i'm not worried about that being the case i mean if you don't like the way the movie ends you don't like the way the movie <laughs> ends but it's not going to be handled badly and i go into that happily in a few years hopefully we can sit down and talk about it part two yes sir Lenore, the anesthesiologist, is going to prep you now. There's nothing wrong with the baby, Lenore. Bradbury short story called The Small Assassin. Are you familiar with Ray Bradbury? Well, obviously, everybody's sort of aware of Ray Bradbury. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of The Illustrated Man. That's one of my favorite anthology collections. Nice. Uh, is, is The Small Assassin in that? 
Not that I recall. This woman is pregnant and she has this thing where she's really nervous as it's coming to give birth to this baby because she claims to remember being born and hating it and forever resenting her mother for it. And uh, sure enough, in true horror story fashion, the baby is born and it has a creepy malevolence about it and ends up killing her as a baby. And I remember finding that story really kind of creepy and disturbing as a short story. I think we have a Chucky problem here. I mean, I, I understand the idea of exploiting the, a mother's fear of having a baby or, or, or their child literally being a monster. <laughs> I understand like the, the, the note that they're trying to play here. But as a frightening horror movie monster, this tiny little baby, this tiny, even if it's this crazy, toothy, clawed, Tasmanian devil baby, there's no weight to it. I just don't understand how it manages to do the things that it does. It's, and the movie it gets around it. With, with efficiency that puts the xenomorphs to shame in Alien does. Covenant. And the movie largely does this by not showing how the baby does it, right? It just cuts around the actual action. I mean, one of my first notes is this feels exactly like an 80s exploitation horror or something like Frogs or Slugs or Which something like that. Which is what it's a remake of. It's based off a movie by Larry Cohen, ultra low budget, late 70s, that had to do with, you know, playing on the, the fear of deformities in babies and... Uh, a monster baby is born, kills every doctor in the room that was delivering the baby, and then not just, they have to find the baby and then figure out what to do with it. And in the original movie, it's actually a plague of these things are starting mm -hmm. to happen. In this one, we're much more focused on this Bijou Phillips woman and, and her reaction to her demon baby. It's not that interested in the why or the how. It's just interested in this monster baby. Yeah, so this is my point about the 1973 one, because the, the monster origin story of the 1973 one is she's on some prenatal drugs. Yes. And this is a very obvious echo of the thalidomide... Um, scare, yeah. Not even scare, but like the side effects from pregnant women on thalidomide in the late 60s and early 70s. So very clearly this is... The original one is an analogy. And this one, they actually explain it in that she finds out she's pregnant and doesn't want the kid. And so she goes online and <laughs> orders these abortive pills, which is already like, you really shouldn't be going online to some company <laughs> that is selling you pills to give you a miscarriage. Like yeah. it's, not, it's not one of those universal problems that all mothers can relate to. Yeah. But this movie should be disturbing and horrifying and, like, hard to shake. I think, like, that would be the approach I would take, I guess. I mean, I don't know how I would approach a killer baby movie, to be honest. I don't think it can be done. That's the thing. I, the idea of it in that Ray Bradbury short story, it stuck with me. I remember thinking that was fucking weird and creepy. But you can't put it on film. It's like the Superman problem. You see the dude in tights and all of a sudden it just becomes strange <laughs> and silly. very silly. <laughs> and that's the opposite of what they're going for. And I didn't laugh out loud a lot in the movie, but I came a lot closer to laughing than I did for, to shuddering at any point. And... I, I actually lolled a couple of times in this movie. <laughs> 
there's one there's a scene where so she's pregnant but she doesn't look fully pregnant it turns out she's six months pregnant she's movie pregnant but she's in the shower having what looks to be a miscarriage it turns out the baby's premature but the scene in the shower has these weird lingering shots on her boobs <laughs> and you're like that's great but not in this movie yeah. and not in this scene and not in this context <laughs> it's, it's really it's like boobs in any context or sexual it's like people who freak out about breastfeeding mothers it's like really is that titillating to you honestly <laughs> it was to like somebody's like no there's boobs we don't want to waste boobs in this shot she might be miscarrying but look at them titties are we fucking serious <laughs> somebody thought that is that where we were at here <laughs> and then shortly after there was a scene where she was in the hospital with her i don't know if her husband or boyfriend and he's trying to coax her through labor so he's talking her through and he's like okay let's talk about remember that time that we first met and you know they we were at their dorm or whatever and like you kept walking past my table back and forth to try to check me out and she's like yeah you were the hottest guy there and he's like yeah it's like this is not about you (laughs) don't take this time to talk about how hot you were back in college remember before i knocked you up (laughs) just think about that (laughs) just pretend you're not great here i brought a photograph of myself Could you really speed this up? Because I actually have a card game I gotta get to. <laughs> I don't know this thing. He's a very caring father. And I, Again, what would you do? Again, there's a lot of fears that you could play on here. If you don't want to do like the, the mother's paranoia about this monster being in their womb, how about just the parent's paranoia that their child is a monster? And, you know, despite their influence, if there's nothing you can do and your kid's a monster, like, how do you how do you deal with that? Or you see the development as it sort of does little monstrous things, which kind of happened. But then she had this really like this strong mother child bond. And like, you just keep taking these dead animals out of its crib like i i don't believe this bond like no. i get that mothers love their kids but i have to think if one as you said a tasmanian devil yeah. at some point they we should stop fucking breastfeeding yeah. which was actually one of the only scenes that i liked when, yeah when he bit her nipple and it looked really scary Awful. and it, i have a nipple thing i mean just like i don't want anything bad to happen to anyone's nipples especially not mine but like ow Ow, 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 ow. I don't like it. <laughs> oh, I've got one other lol, which was my biggest one. Uh, when we finally see the baby at the end, I made a note that it looks like a garbage pail kid. Mm-hmm. And then in a scene very shortly after, the father picks it up and puts him in a garbage, a garbage kid pail. And still can't bring himself to kill it. And then he opens it, and it's this like slithering monster, and his heart grows. Like, I can't kill my son. But it's part of me. This... This monstrous, murderous thing is part of me. (laughs) But again, that note didn't really seem to, or at least it didn't get played in a way that I really believed it. No, nothing, no emotion in this movie is believable. Because this movie's not that interesting, I keep on talking about things peripheral (laughs) to it, but uh, there's a movie called Grace, which is like a fucking brutal one-timer. Like, it's, it's such an horrendous horror movie but yeah this this woman has to finds out that her baby is dead and she has to give birth to a stillborn baby and she picks it up and she's just weeping and she's like begging please 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 and the baby wakes up and it's this vampiric baby that she has to feed and it's all about the corruption of a mother's love and it's just a fucking horrifying movie Mm -hmm. 
I don't I didn't even know how to recommend that movie, but that's what this movie wanted to be or maybe should have been. Yeah. But that it utterly failed at like it's an emotionally I did not connect. This is a movie that ends spoilers <laughs> with the mother taking her child into a burning house and, and, and allowing her and the child to be burned alive. That's where we're headed. And I felt nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Ouch. I think that the original movie just has a, a weird shock value approach to it, and it's so and, cheaply executed, and its its oddness kind of makes it memorable. But... And one of the best horror movie posters of all time. Right, yeah. But, uh, again, you could the same argument with thousands of remakes. You did not need to remake this movie. But if you did, you needed to, to make it hard and scary. <laughs> well, there's another angle that I thought they were going to play, and then they absolutely didn't. But the father had a brother. It was his brother, right, who was mm-hmm. in the wheelchair that right. had gone into an accident. And the brother starts noticing things, not the least of which I was thinking of you. There's a cat. And then you see this, like, claw grab the cat and kill it. And right. I thought, I remember very clearly hearing Larry complain not long ago that dogs keep dying. We need more cat Just death. one, I want to see it. So that one was for you. <laughs> But another angle you could play is the parents are... Maybe this kid's got some sort of psychic thing where he makes his parents go insane and only this younger brother who's physically limited because he's either in walkers or a wheelchair, depending on the scene. Can see it. He can see it and he's trying to warn them and he will have to confront it and, and it could be climactic. But instead you have this kid that pops up every now and then in the background of a scene where he doesn't seem to belong like the romantic dinner where they're like yeah let's i made you this dinner we're totally gonna fuck afterwards and like oh my brother's here this weird kid's in the room (laughs) (laughs) does he live here i can't remember and then nothing happens with him he watches them burn but that's it like he his role in the movie was to be in the house and get out of the house before it burned yeah maybe we could worry for him but i couldn't worry for for anybody no in the movie which is it's just it's but problematic this movie was the closest to a good bad movie on the list yeah i would think you think because the other bad movies were a little too good to be good bad movies and the good movies were too good to be good bad movies and jaws was just boring Ugh. as fuck i just kept on thinking of other ways they could have made this movie more interesting and it seemed like there was a lot of options again what if it was okay the kid's a monster but we could play the angle that the parents refuse to acknowledge it right not my little boy he's just a baby he's just misunderstood no we don't even get that right or one of like one of the parents becomes jealous of the other one maybe even flip it up maybe it's the father that's got the stronger bond and the mother realizes that the kid's awful and there's right. some tension there yeah but no none none of that happens and if you spend the movie thinking about all the ways that you would make the movie more interesting had you made the movie or all the decisions they could have done then yeah I wasn't having fun with it, I guess is what I'm saying. I guess I can, in a weird way, have some fun with the original, but I guess context helps, and seeing it when you're a little kid for the first time <laughs> helps, but this is what definitely, I, I can't imagine wanting to remake that movie, like, I don't know where it fits today. <laughs> yeah, it just, it's, again, it was of its time because of the whole thalidomide thing. Right. There was a reason why they made that movie in the first place, but this, I guess somebody liked that movie. Yeah. And again, they didn't really effectively convincingly show the baby kill anyone that ever, really. What's the most convincing death in the movie for you? Uh, the psychiatrist came to their house to talk to them, and the kid's in the backseat of the car, and then he puts his hand off screen, and then he come, it brings it back up, and he's missing some fingers. Yeah. 
and then you hear and then then he's the dead. car is full of blood yeah and then i guess the don't... parents get rid of the bloody car somehow <laughs> but we don't ever actually see it it's sort of I've, I've said before if you don't have the budget to make jason takes manhattan then don't make it if you don't know how to show us a baby killing these people, if you if the premise of your movie is a killer baby and you as a filmmaker don't know how to show it, then <laughs> what are you doing? Or not even, I mean, maybe this is right along the lines, but if you don't have a vision, yeah. like even you can say, okay, there's a vision that failed, but there's no vision here. This is a movie that was popular in the 70s. Let's remake it. That was the vision. conversation i think for the most part yes <laughs> yes uh again i agree with you strange bunch of movies um two of them i didn't like but even the ones i like i felt like i was leaning on the negatives today i don't know if we've got storm clouds over our heads or whatever <laughs> but uh yeah i don't know what to say <laughs> this is a really hard rank list to put together um and in some ways i might betray myself a little bit like betray my integrity a little bit Uh-oh. but maybe not it's like well just maybe go into the movies and explain why they are on the list okay the way they are obviously at the bottom is jaws i think that is <laughs> that conversation. Uh, i think pretty obviously the next one up is it's alive which is a really terrible incompetent movie but it's incompetence <laughs> becomes amusing at a certain point but also not so amusing that I'd ever want to watch it again. Right. Agreed. Um, this is where we start getting into problems with the movies punching above their weight and below their weight. Right. Um, so the next one I'm going to put is Alien Covenant, which I think more people would like Alien Covenant than some of the movies above it. And some of the things about it are really competent. And some of the things about it are... A little boring and pretentious and just kind of unenjoyable to watch yeah so that rounds at the bottom of my list here's where I think I might betray my integrity and put bite next even though I actually did enjoy watching bite more than I enjoyed watching it I think objectively it is a better movie Uh, I just found it quite frustrating Uh, so yeah uh, it I didn't get any negative emotions with Bite because I was never supposed to feel anything all that good and right. it far surpassed expectations. Where the next one is It, which is just very clearly a well-made movie, um, but it's it also just missed so many opportunities and there was the the too much clanging sounds when creepiness would have been uh, more appropriate. Um, and then at the top of the list is The Monster, which... Um, <clears throat> The thing that I liked about it, which is the thing I like about horror movies that I like, um, it was it was a drama first and foremost. First and foremost, it was about the characters. The allegory did get heavy-handed, yeah. um, but I like the human story in it. And the monster looked a little bit silly, but I thought it did what it should do. Fuck. We missed it by we missed it by biting it, didn't we? I'm just oh. Matthew the list uh, in my order. 
Uh, yeah, obviously Jaws 3 is the worst of these movies. I think on any given list that I've had so far, it would be really fucking challenging. Like, I love shark movies. I will put up with a lot of fucking bullshit for a shark movie. I really would, but... No, I couldn't. I cannot make any excuses for Jaws 3. I will not make any excuses for Jaws 3. It's not funny in a cheesy 80s way. It's not funny in a so bad it's good way. It is a waste of your life. <laughs> okay? No matter how much you like Manimal or Leah Thompson, it's just <laughs> not going to save it for you. Yes, for everything that we had just finished talking about, the It's Alive remake. You don't need to remake that movie, but if you are going to remake that movie, take an angle any angle yeah and if you're not able to show us the baby killing anyone then what are you shooting like i don't know what happened like, <laughs> someone needed to just halt production at some point did you does anyone notice that nobody has any kind of plan here well, or also make the make the baby grow more powerful and dangerous over time as opposed to the moment that they cut the umbilical cord it literally kills everybody in the yeah. delivery room. well i can't not picture the tasmanian devil because like <laughs> the room is just fucking wall papered with gore right like it was not a gentle and there's five or six people in the room so yeah like... it's a lot of them. <laughs> see that sounds like it would be awesome by description yep. but really it isn't yes all the way in fourth place and perhaps unkindly is alien covenant although i seem to be kinder to it than most as an alien movie goes like i said it's most effective at being a monster movie but for me that's where alien started alien started being one of the best monster movies ever made and Ridley Scott tried to make it into a pretentious sci-fi franchise until he remembered, right, monsters. <laughs> so if you're in the mood for a monster movie, yes to Alien Covenant. If you're in the mood for deep sci-fi, no Alien Covenant. <laughs> so just, just know what you're getting into. Bite overperformed for me. I do have a soft spot for low-budget Canadian film, as I must. <laughs> but uh, again, I think that yeah, it, it wears its influences proudly, but I think it's original enough to justify its own existence. And fun enough to watch. It's fun for how unpleasant it is. It is a pretty fun watch. I guess fun with quotations <laughs> around it. Uh, and it's one of those movies that's so icky you kind of want to show it to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I can be that somebody. So I pass that on. So we've been agreeing all this time, right? We're super excited. Uh, this is all of our ranks and reviews. I know, right? In second place, I put the monster, and my, like, again, it's it's obvious in everything it's doing. There's nothing new about anything it's doing, but that's really its only major problem, right? Like, yeah, we get it. The mom's alcoholism is the true monster, and she's going to have to, you know, make some sacrifice to redeem herself in the eyes of her daughter. Like, Five minutes into the movie, you know the whole movie, and yet the movie is still good. And I think that is really to its credit, mm -hmm. right? I, I like it. Uh, it overperformed. I have a deep, deep personal attachment to it. It's one of my favorite Stephen King books, and uh, again, one of the first novels I ever read. I read it before I understood all of it. <laughs> like, literally. So uh, it's a movie that I've spent all this time waiting for, and that... Because I am such an obsessive, I spent that half an hour review saying all of these negative things about it. But in the end, I love this story, and I think that they did it as good a justice as I guess you could for, like, uh, as much as they chopped out of it, right? I still feel like there's large swaths of things that I love missing from, the, from this movie, but there's enough in it that I love that it made it 
to the top of the list. Yeah, that's I'm fair enough. I can, I can live with that. I, I, uh, <laughs> it's closer than you thought it would be, isn't it? Uh, it is, yeah. I mean, I came very close to putting it uh, third on my list. I, right. it got, I could, because Bite was such a nice surprise and the monster was such a nice surprise. But honestly, I would recommend it to more people than I would recommend anything else on this list. Yeah, and these are definitely for the horror nerds out there. If you're looking for one of those Diamond in the Rough movies, I would definitely escort you towards the monster and, and bite, for sure. But if I'm looking for something that's going to blow your mind, maybe maybe I wouldn't. But to genre people out there, to the Lee Beckmans out there, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being a part of episode 124 of Rank and Review, my brother. All right, thanks for having me. You got it. Thank you for listening to that episode of Rank and Review. And just one more time for the record, I really did like that It movie, despite what you heard of that review. But uh, you can set me straight or back me up by writing me at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Please tell a friend about the show. Please do anything you can to spread the word. And don't forget, out there in the ether somewhere... It gets closer to you every day, kids. Book of Trespasses, a feature motion picture, a supernatural horror thriller, written and co-directed by your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. Support the show, support the movie, and you are a friend to your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. Until next week, kids.